0: now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the Lennon and McCartney of Bigfoot, the are arguably Harrison and Star, Cliff and Bobo.
1: What's the most important things you learned from the tribes?
2: I'm an outsider. You know, I work for the tribes, but I'm an outsider. I'm not I'm privy to a lot of things. But no, I've had What's the most important thing? Well, that's a tough one, because there's there's so much more going on, too. That's the other thing. um, I guess one of the most important things that I started to see was, in terms of the flesh and blood versus spirit debate, which is endless, I found from reading 300-year-old reports, and stories from Indians that they've always argued about that. There's always been an argument in Indian country as to whether or not Bigfoot can turn invisible. And it's gone on for hundreds of years. Nothing new. And I thought that was really interesting when I learned that. I guess, yeah, the most important thing is that Many, the different culture that you referred to earlier, of the Indian culture, where there are many, all the tribes are different. And there's no generalization you can really say about the tribes that's fair. So I'll avoid that, but- Well,
0: yeah, that's a, it's just stereotyping and a different flavor is all that is.
2: Yeah, yeah and I, I want to avoid, I always want to treat everybody as an individual and avoid that if possible. But the most important thing is that these beings have a relationship with tribal people that they don't have with most white people because the culture that the tribes are raised in, their culture is different to ours. And as children, they are often uh, in some tribes, they go on vision quests as children and they go up in the mountains and they meet their spirit guides or they encounter their spirit guides and they seek power in the mountains. And when you, the basic idea of going on a vision quest is, you know, you go and meet your power animal or whatever. I mean, it's taboo to talk about whatever you see. And that's, a shared taboo that I'd say most all the tribes are like that. And they have different rules because all the tribes are different. Some tribes you can talk about it only in battle or at the moment of death or when you're threatened with death. And at that time you can actually talk about it. So, but otherwise, no. And so it's hard to get information, but whatever meets those kids up there is Bigfoot as well. We see them later as Bigfoot, but the most important thing I've really learned is that um, these guys are, see for a long time I thought, they're a physical creature that has puzzling powers. One of which has to do with electrical fields that they can broadcast. And another is that they themselves can turn into electricity they can just turn into a ball of energy, like they're pure energy creatures. And that, would that be that the would, orb phenomenon? It, the orb phenomenon is an uh, offshoot of it. But basically, what I learned from the Indians is these, these creatures are balls of light, and they take the form, the physical form of a Bigfoot, and they can take other physical forms. And... Indian children are acquainted with them from a young age. And so they, these creatures know these individual Indians from a young age. And we can't say the same as being white people. that grew up not in that culture. They're, we're not known by them at a young age, but, but many Indians are. And I wouldn't say many. I don't know what the number is the old ways like that. But it's different in every tribe and it's it's different across America. But here in the Northwest, from all the contact I've seen, it's 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 what is behind it all. And there's other there's like that's another order of life, balls of light. And there are many different species of balls of light and um Bigfoot's not the only thing out there and I'd say that that's like one of the most amazing things I learned from hanging out in Indian country for 25 years is they're really there you know it's like Star Trek episode sort of in that there's a episode where the Klingons and the Federation are Trying to fight, and Kirk's trying to get in the fight, and they're trying to protect this helpless uh, society on a planet. And it turns out that the helpless society is really energy beings that are pure energy, and they're so evolved compared to humans that you know. Spock makes some comment like, "It'll be like billions of years before we're evolved that far." It's the kind of situation we're in, in my opinion is that science can't really accept any of this yet. But that's where I have to go with the experiences of my Indian pals and say, well, you know, science just can't catch up with this. This is, yet yeah, it will. I have faith in science. I think science, as we know it today, will will get way more sophisticated and be able to comprehend how this can be and how there can be a, uh, well, the relationship between consciousness and the body, and how there can be uh, creatures such as the Sasquatch who can, they have conscious control over the true power of their subconscious mind. And so they can incarnate as a flesh and blood creature, and then just turn into a uh, electrical field.
0: I just heard something and- electronic behind you that sounded like a Bigfoot call. Did you hear that, Bubs? <laughs> I heard it. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, Henry. Really? But it was funny when I you said, hear. "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Oh, I- like a blender. Anyway, I'm sorry to interrupt with that, but I was just well, so overtaken know, there, by the there, timing.
2: Well, yeah, I'm. Um, I'm amazed. I didn't hear that, but. Um... I'm just telling the truth as I see it. Yes. Like that's what all us Bigfoot researchers do, right? Hey, you know, but you know, the thing, you know, that's, that's the thing is that I, that, that would be the most important thing I ever learned, you know, in summary is that I, I did look at everything from a flesh and blood perspective at first and then I realized that was inadequate to explain what happened to me and what I saw. And then over many, many experiences, which I will go into right this second, because, boy, we could be here all night going on about the, all the weird crap. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, you know, the other thing I've learned is that some tribes, their creation story is a Bigfoot story. And other tribes have um, secret religions that place Bigfoot as their highest protector. There's a tribe in Montana that Bigfoot is their highest protector, and they have a religion that's so complicated that it takes a lifetime to learn it. And they estimate 30 years. No outsiders can know that it exists, but it And they don't worship Bigfoot, but he's their highest protector. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, I've learned a lot of things about the different tribes and their feelings towards it. And, you know, it's always much more complicated. At first, you're like, oh, and then that tribe has two different factions, and the one faction's, you know, this way, and the uh, other, you know, there's always, it just keeps going like that. But
0: I would um, argue that um, th- the modern dominant culture, like you know, the the Western European culture that um, is not on the reservation, basically, um, there's are factions of bigfooters that also take Sasquatch as their religion.
2: You would know, really, and you're right. No, I mean, I'm I'm out of touch, but I I tend to um, I have to agree with you, man. You know, shit. You know, it's uh, there's a whole spiritual. Um, A whole spiritual
0: uh, path, I guess, to walk with Sasquatches. Yeah, it seems that people defend the subject or their perspective on the subject um, with the religious fervor, you know, that could, you know, rival any
2: of the more dominant religions. Yeah, I I think you're right about that, man. I used to say everybody has a little Eric Beckyard in them. Because he was so (laughs) that he was so driven and cruel and insane in his pursuit of knowledge about Bigfoot, he would he would step on anyone and do anything for glorious self expansion. But um, he turned into that. I don't I don't know I
0: don't have a good biographical knowledge of Eric Beckchort. I only met the man once, Um, but because I I have a bunch of historical archives from the seventies. And his name pops up quite often in correspondence with John Green and DeHinden and those guys. He's the source of Bigfoot information. And then later on in life, he just, I guess it's fair to say, went off the deep end and, you know, did some pretty nutty stuff. (laughs) I remember the blowout between you two on the IVBC, But, yeah, so tell us about it and then lead up to that because I'd love to hear that story again. I love it.
2: Eric was one of the very early Bigfoot people in the 70s in California. There was a there were like moments in history, where around the time of the Patterson film, there was a surge in interest, and then in the 70s there was a surge interest in the California, that led to Peter up in the Dalles with an early Bigfoot research project. He returned in the 90s. In the 90s, 93, 4, there was an uptick and in interest so there were different periods where suddenly it got big and eric was one of the really early ones yeah he was there in the early 70s 72 three he was really into it and um, there were a lot of california researchers at that time well that was the was heyday
0: the, of the bay area group george well, Hass or
2: has and uh warren thompson archie buckley uh all warren those Warren Thompson had a collection of news clippings and things that was, would stagger the mind. It was really in, immense. Warren Thompson had the biggest collection of newspaper clippings and stories and things about Bigfoot that I had ever seen. And there was a woman, the woman that um, worked with. Joyce Albert. Kearney. Yeah. Oh, she had a staggering have- collection too. And. And so Beckyard, because he was so aggressive, really acted like a mailman and would move between all these people that had huge collections of sighting reports. And um, he would he sort of like a bee, he would pollinate them because he would pass information among them. And he was one of the only people passing information among them. So, yeah, he did. But he, no, Beckyard was always a uh, complete piece of work. And there may be, I don't know when he went completely. um, He didn't really go hostile. He genuinely wanted to know what was going on with Bigfoot. He just became convinced that it was really weird and paranormal to the point where, if anybody told him a story, if it wasn't paranormal, he didn't believe it. It had to be paranormal or it wasn't true. And if it was any kind of Bigfoot cross the road story, Becker just thought it was shit. And so I guess uh, that's
0: the, the that's the counterbalance to uh, yeah. the most strident fundamentalist flesh and
2: blooders today, right? Yes, it is. He was the counterbalance and he and he took a really hardened position in part because. You know, you get shrill when you're just arguing all the time with flesh and blooders. And you're like the whack ball going, no, no, it's a ball of energy. So, um, but he, <laughs> the thing is, is that he uh, had dreams of grandeur. He was really mentally disturbed in, a, in terms of his narcissism and his driven uh, lack of self-awareness in a certain way. He was convinced that I knew what was going on and knew way more than he did and he wanted me to tell him. And so I had him bamboozled. You know, I wasn't the only one. There was a, a person named Dennis Harryford. Oh, the, the the sheriff, of course, from Grays Harbor County. Well, he's quite an interesting fellow. And um, Eric Beckyard had discouraged him out of the out of the community. Eric had a discouraging effect on a lot of early Bigfoot researchers who basically chose to not be public rather than deal with Beck here.
0: That's fair enough. And, he was a pain in the ass, you know, although he did get on Letterman. You got it. You, know, you got it. You, got to, you got, to, got to hand that to him.
2: He, well, yeah, he was He was like a media creation, you know. He was just obsessed with Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, and Bigfoot. He had
0: a Bigfoot Loch Ness Monster UFO museum in downtown San Francisco back in the day.
2: Yes. And see, 97, when this happened, and I was actually beginning my 25-year career as a scientist, I really was like, you know— I had to talk to my fellow scientists at my job and say, and they were like, you shouldn't antagonize these people, Henry. And (laughs) I was like, you're right. I shouldn't, you know, I, I just can't help it, you know? And so um, I chose to be quiet and stop antagonizing people because I was really ready to argue with any flesh and blood or to the death. You know, at that time, I was just, um, I had read Rupert Sheldrake and I was actually becoming a biologist myself. And um, I was just an argumentative person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: what? Sheldrake Shell, I like I like Rupert Sheldrake. I think he makes some good points and stuff. And uh but it, it I do like his idea of the um morphic fields, right? Where the more you do something, the easier it is for everybody else. And I I, I think I talked about this uh with Ken Gerhard when he was on the episode last week or whenever. Um like, or maybe it wasn't him, maybe it was somebody else. I don't remember. But anyway, uh like yeah, Hendrix blazed the the way, right? And but now lots of people can play like Hendrix. And that's like something that Rupert Sheldrake points out in his biological studies is that once somebody does something, it gets easier for other people to do it, no matter where they are, which is an interesting idea. But what what was your take on Rupert Sheldrake in this context?
2: Well, it's a lot of things, actually. You know, that's the thing is that um, I've sought to understand how there what the connection of, let's say, in modern biology One looks at modern biology In mainstream biologists, and I know a lot of them, uh, tend to think in mechanist terms. They are reductionists and mechanists. They believe that everything can be explained in terms of purely chemical and physical processes. And this starts with Descartes back in 300 years ago and his view that the world is a machine and that all the animals in it are machines and that the universe is a machine it's a great big clock and you can understand it and most biological scientists in the mainstream look at everything they do that way and they look at bigfoot that way you know there must be a purely chemical and physical process or processes that we can identify. And if we look at smaller and smaller parts, DNA, inside DNA, shape of DNA, deeper and deeper, we will get to the truth. And these two mental uh, focuses are really um, common, let's say, and restrictive. And Rupert Sheldrake is not of that species. And he does not agree with the mechanist, but is more of the lost school of the vitalists who believe that there is a um, what did they call it? A luminiferous ether. Yes, that was their term back in the 1930s. That there is an ether and that ether is a vital energy that animates all living creatures. And there is a non unseen undetectable component to life there is a field there is a energy field that you can't see or sense that moves through all living creatures and they cannot be reduced to purely chemical and physical processes because they are aware living beings and they are animated with spirit and every that animation is actually a field that is um, awareness itself. And so Rupert Sheldrake really looks at it differently in that way. And morphic fields are basically an offshoot of that underlying reality that they. Uh, There's one awareness. There's one mind passing through everything, and each of each living creature is an antenna receiving it. And each of us that has an individual awareness, we 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 really don't. We think we do. We think we're we are individual. That's the beauty and magic of life. So we think we're all unique individuals, but every living creature is really receiving this overall broadcast of one mind that's moving through everything yeah,
1: and yeah they the
2: we all just see the presence.
0: sliver that we identify yeah. with
2: right yeah and the morphic resonance field of rupert sheldrake is that field that's passing through all living creatures all the time and and it's and so you know that's that's a real schism that Rupert really works on that I, that I love, that he he's one of the great thinkers in that area. And he's a real biologist that found the limits of biology. And that's one of the things that happens when, you know, for example, I, I helped to tag 3 million fish with um, RFID tags and then followed them for their whole lives using various detectors. And then measure all these different things like what segment of their life cycle, how many died in each segment of their life cycle. And, you know, how conditions may have effect, you know, environmental conditions affected them to increase the death rate and things. Yeah. And just studied all kinds of crazy shit like that. and. The assumptions made by those scientists are that the fish feel no pain and that the tags were causing no issues. And they had done all kinds of experiments to prove that the fish were not aware of the tags and did not feel pain. And, and only through um, later studies where we measured the amount of cortisol produced by the fish and we correlated that with pain and proved that actually sticking a giant 10-millimeter tag in a baby salmon stomach when it's about 100 millimeters long itself is like shoving a 2 by 4 into your stomach. And their levels of cortisol increased tremendously, i.e., they felt pain. And so this lack of regard for the other living creatures' awareness and ability to think is really widespread in mainstream biology, in that they explain away the fact that they're herding these things that they're studying in search of truth. And they don't regard the creatures as having any kind of sentience, which I think is a terrible mistake and i also think that applies to bigfoot in the sense that
0: i was just thinking uh, uh, as you're talking what i'm hearing is more of a um you're suggesting an approach of whatever subject in this case bigfoot or you know it could be whatever but um you're suggesting an approach that's more holistic in nature that looks at not only the science not only what other weird stuff a phenomenon might be associated with the thoughts of these things. Not only the spiritual aspect, not only the cultural aspect, not only the mythological or historical aspect, but all of it altogether. And um I'm not really a paranormal guy. You know, I I think that these things are largely explained, if not completely explained, by, you know, what other animals do, right? But um it, it, I have a lot of friends in the paranormal sort of fringe fields, whether it's ghosts or, you know, UFOs or you name it, man. I, I know a lot of weirdos and they're all great. And what I see as a trend amongst most of those communities, if not all of them again, is, uh, an approach towards like the, the grand unification theory of all the phenomenon into one somehow or another, like the, the oneness of all those things. Um, I was watching hellier, which was, a a um, a series made by a couple friends of mine um, and, and ours. Bobo knows them well because they're in a Finding Bigfoot episode. Greg and Dana Newkirk from Planet Weird. And Hellier one, they start out by looking for goblins in Kentucky, as unluckily as that sounds. And at the end, they're running into weird coincidences and synchronicities. And then season two just came out. I watched it, and it's weird. And I think some of it's f- super funny and ridiculous. I think other one, other parts of it are like deeply, deeply meaningful. Um, but again, they're just chasing. This thing, the phenomenon, that's like the best word they have for it, the phenomenon, um, whatever that is. And I think that it's an interesting variable word to use. Like you can just put any phenomenon in there, Bigfoot, UFOs, ghosts, uh, parapsychology, para-ichthyology, the city of ghostfish societies, whatever you want to put in there. Um, If you're chasing it, it's better to come from a perspective where it's one weird thing instead of a bunch of different ones and I kind of hear you saying that about sasquatches and I hear Tom Powell saying it about a variety of other things and I know he looks up to you and your thoughts very much so um, well, and I really, see that as a general movement in the paranormal field out there so
2: well I'm I I think it's um it's all affected by whatever the underlying reality really is where if we ever figure that out yeah whatever because, that is. Well, yeah, because I, I can. I mean, my approach that's one thing about Bigfoot that I grew to appreciate. You can approach it however you want, it's up to you. You can really go your own way. There's something to, is for everyone. Yeah. 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 You don't have to ascribe it to a school of thought or join a camp and camp only with these people or those people. Yeah, you can join a group. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't have to do all that. You can actually just approach it in your own way. And I, I have for me, I have always just gone my own way with my personal uh, quest for knowledge. Yeah, but I think that there's. there's a matrix-like aspect that all of these people may be touching upon that's becoming more visible in that I think one of the... uh, To try to explain the things I've seen, I, I think that this place really, this place we live, whatever it is, it does have a matrix like aspect to it in that I've seen these creatures walk through solid matter and I've witnessed them uh, being in places and then leaving those places that could not be left without me seeing anything, you know, whatever I've, I don't mean to get to digress. I've seen some shit with these guys that that defy scientific explanation as we know it today. So I think that there's a large. This is a theory. There is a underlying. Um, there's something like the the. What what do they call that cosmic background radiation? There's there's an equivalent of that in electricity and in energy. There's a vibrating field in the background of all this of faster-than-light energy, and it's in standing waves. It's in the form of standing waves. And matter is energy slowed down, but what I'm trying to say is that this dimension seems to be one of many dimensions and that this place we live is a place that there's a superposition to use the quantum mechanics thing. There are many layers to this place we live and each of them is vibrating at a different frequency. And what's vibrating is an ether, a basic ether. And that thing that's vibrating is actually your consciousness your awareness, your thinking, you, the spirit, you, is actually a frequency of energy that's vibrating at a very, very rapid frequency. And all the living creatures here and what's behind all their eyes is the same vibrating frequency. And we're all in sync with each other. In other words, we're in perfect phase with each other. Granted, this is my theory. And, um, I don't have a lot of evidence for this. But our friends, the Sasquatch, are not bound to that frequency like we are, and they're able to change the frequency their awareness is vibrating at. They have conscious control over the true powers of their subconscious mind. And their subconscious is actually the thing that's controlling the speed of this vibration of their awareness. So every living thing in this dimension is vibrating at the same speed. And our friends, the Sasquatch, can basically um, break ranks. And whenever they break rank and go out of phase with this, they don't even have to change frequency. They can just go out of phase. Then they're frictionless in all dimensions, and they can move through solid matter or through time or through space. And they can also turn invisible. And this basic ability of theirs to focus energy with their minds gives them the ability to do this and to do all sorts of things that appear paranormal but are not paranormal. They're simply consequences of it being able to focus energy with its mind. And we do the same thing all the time but we're not conscious of our subconscious powers. So we don't realize we're balls of light also and are just you know, being received by the antennas, which are our bodies. Since our balls of light are you know, hanging around with our bodies, we think we are our bodies. but we are not our bodies. We are actually also balls of light, just like the Sasquatch. But they, they have the ability to basically, they know they're balls of light, whereas we don't. And we're stuck with our material selves. They're not. And so we're really not very different at all. We have different degrees of awareness and different degrees of mental conscious control over our subconscious minds. That's what I think. So I don't think paranormal at all, actually. I think that's what's going on. And that's like they have conscious control over the field of morphic resonance that Rupert Sheldrake's talking about. But that's, you know, that's what puts me off in a corner, not camping near anybody when I go out in the Sasquatch expedition. Well,
1: yeah, but. Everybody- if you hey, Andrew, have a, go
0: up
2: there, go over there in the corner, will
0: you? Yeah. Yeah. If you have a shirt on that says that, no one's gonna want to camp next to you. <laughs>
2: really? I know. I know. That's the thing, is <laughs> really, you know, like let's let's knock on some trees and do some calls. Go, yeah, oh yeah. yeah, yeah man, it, it, let's go.
0: You can reach a wider audience like that. Well, you know, I mean that that's you're really putting the beyond back in Bigfoot and Beyond, and I appreciate that. And I can't disagree with you. You know, that's the great thing about
2: well, it's, a it's a theory, you know, that's all it is. I I've made my it's a little piece of my model of the universe that I have come to, you know, create because I need science as we know today to make some advances so that I can get a logical explanation for Bigfoot teleporting and disappearing and being telepathic and turning into trees and cows and deer and whatever you know and just a million things I've seen them do that I just go wow, controlling other animals. That that one's. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Um, there was this woman I knew I met early on. I have to rely, you know, being. I essentially look at, you know, and I'm sure Tom Powell probably says this kind of thing, but I look at the whole mystery as an intelligence problem. We are trying to gather intelligence about another intelligent species. Now, others make other assumptions, you know, that they're looking for an ape or an animal. And I think that colors the whole, you know, path. You know, that's that's a choice. You make the one assumption it's an animal. you you make all the billion other assumptions based on that first one. And same thing with the other one. I assume they're intelligent, and so I gather intelligence. I don't try to measure the um, width and ratio of the footprint. I gather intelligence in terms of stories from people. So, there was this woman I met early on, early 90s. I met some really interesting old ladies in the early 90s. And one of them lived in California. And she was at a Girl Scout camp. And see, I have, um, pardon me, I digress again. I have this thing that if you, you know, it's not the stories that are like the other stories. The way information theory works is if something happens one time and one time only, it has the most information. And if it has it happens twice, it has mathematically less information. And if it happens 10 times, it's low information, 20 times. So whereas some people look at all the sighting reports and say, hey, I want to look at the ones, you know, Bigfoot crossed the road. Well, there's hundreds of them like that, you know, and. And everybody goes, yeah, okay, mine's just like everybody else's. But I was always fascinated with the one of a kind ones. So this woman had this one of a kind story, which was she was going to, she was sneaking into the dining hall at her Girl Scout camp at night to get some bug juice because she was thirsty. And there was a Bigfoot standing in there and he had a belt on with an, a red and green LED on it. And while she was looking at him, the LED went from red to green. And she she said, and then it dove out the window. <laughs>
0: that's something. I, I can't say I've heard that one before.
2: Right. I never heard that one ever, right? You know. And I said, Wow, that's a weird story, man. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that. I
0: don't know if I believe. That. But this believe, is, the woman, to believe it is brain, another step. The, the first step right. is to listen to it and enjoy it because it's so bizarre and unusual and, and novel, you know, that level of novelty should tickle your brain in some sort of way, whether it's BS or not.
2: Right. It tickled my brain because she was a very, um, she was an old woman. She was 80, 90 years old. And, was just telling me the story and and her manner and attitude was like, she didn't expect me to believe this, but I was like fascinated. I was like, oh, that's really, really weird, man. And um, it was things like that that happened one time and one time only that really stuck in my mind. And so that one was one where I was like, what the hell is really going on here? How... How smart are these guys? And I couldn't really shake this one story that just kept bugging me, and that was like one of them where I was just like, you know, LED on a belt? Really?
0: (laughs) Well, if they're that advanced, why would LEDs be the highest level of their technology?
2: Well, I don't think it – like I said, I think their technology is based on their ability to focus energy with their minds.
0: What was their belt holding up?
2: I don't know. I'm not sure what what that was all about. I sometimes I suspect they invented LEDs 300 years ago. <laughs> Why 300? Well, um, i some period of time, maybe. Much, okay. you know, it's a guess. It's I'm guessing metaphorically. I'm guessing. All right, making a guess. I am. It's pure <laughs> guess. I have no no proof at all. But you know, sometimes I suspect so i i get i get seriously paranoid about technology <laughs> it's <laughs> and its relationship to Bigfoot you know because i am convinced they're unbelievably great engineers i think of them as super scientists hillbilly super scientists i think they're just as hillbilly as anybody <laughs> and get way down there anytime and wallow in their creatureliness and just really relish being a creature, and then they're super scientists. That's what Bigfoot is to me. You know, like I, I know everybody else has got other ideas about it. I've heard them, but um, the uh, the thing is, is that that's that's what I've found. You know, and you know, you guys now after you do this long enough, it's you know you only believe. What happened to you? Yeah, really. You you sort of lose touch sometimes with everything else from everything. It's true. So many stories coming at you. You're like, well, geez. (laughs) I don't know. That sounds pretty weird.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was your best best sighting, would you say?
2: I... And the funny thing about me is that... um, I've only really had one sighting. I've had many communications and encounters and conversations and um, interactions, all kinds of things. But I've only really had one sighting. And it um, wasn't far from where I live. But, but I've had, like, I've, I've had, I mean... I'm not a visually oriented guy, really. I'm more auditory, I think. But the, uh, I was driving behind Scapoose, and I was on a logging road in the hills behind Scapoose. And there's a, if, if you go to the north end of Forest Park and then keep going past Forest Park, there's the mountains just get bigger and bigger. And that's where I live now, you know. But I live further out in the higher mountains. So I just drew, I I was driving down a logging road and I suddenly, with no explanation, I turned a sharp 90 degrees crossways on the road, shining the headlights into a bush and there was a Bigfoot in the bush. And I saw these two green glowing eyes and the um, shape of the Bigfoot creature moving behind the bush. And I have no understanding for why I turned 90 degrees and shine the light right on it 10 feet away. But I did. And I didn't do it consciously. Whoa. Like I... Yeah, my wife was with me, too. And I just turned 90 degrees, and it was right in front of me. And that's the only time. How did the encounter <laughs> end? Um, it, it walked off to the left. Was it a big one, or a, what
0: color was it? Or can you describe what you okay. saw?
2: I was through the bushes, it was through these bushes. And so I saw, I would put it closer to black, like really dark brown hair and um, human shape and eight feet. And what I kind of expected, except the eyes were more triangular, like two triangles of glowing green. Rather than, you know, like little one, like there was a certain angular. And my wife made the comment of predator eyes. She said, she said predator eyes, which I had to agree because they had a certain predator vibe to them. And they were angular and triangular. And um, that's what I remember the most was the eyes, of course. When was that? uh,
0: Oh... Month and year, I, season and year, or something?
2: I'd say 95 ish. Okay. Yeah, 95. Um, God, I don't, I, you know, that's the thing is, I don't, I don't have the, I don't keep track of them like I used to. Cause I've had, uh, um, I probably told you about like the one where there was the laughing guy, the one that was laughing at me from the bush. Here, here's a typical Henry Bigfoot encounter. I'm walking down a railroad track with my wife and um, I've had 30-ish interactions like this. And I'm trying to describe to her in my layman's terms, because I am just a layman, the Big Bang and the theory of the Big Bang and how the universe is formed as this Big Bang happened and blew up and, you know, led to today 13 and a half billion years later. And there's a, we're on the bank of the Nehalem River, and there's a bush between us and the river about 30 feet away. And it's about a 10-foot high, 10-foot wide bush, big, tall bush. And suddenly, laughter bursts out from this bush. And it sounds like a big gorilla laughing, deep chest laughter. And I look at my wife and I go that sounds like Bigfoot is laughing at us. The laughter doubles down and goes even more. Ha ha ha. And I said, it then stops. And I said, I think he's laughing at my physics. One of the weird things that's happening throughout this is that it's happening at the total speed of thought in that the microsecond I stop with my comment of saying, I think he's laughing at my physics, as I just say the S in physics. That instant he starts laughing, and then the instant that I want to speak again, he stops on a microsecond dime, and we're doing a call and response. But the timing, because I am a drummer, is happening at this really precise high-speed telepathic timing where the second message that's coming on top of the laughing is that I can read your mind. I know exactly when you're going to speak and when you're not going to speak, and I'm going to laugh in exactly that interval to show you that I'm actually telepathically totally reading you right now. And so this went on for 20 minutes as I kept repeating different questions going, you know, like, I think he thinks the Big Bang Theory's bogus, laughing really hard. So at the time, which was 1994, okay, <laughs> springtime, May, the Halen River by Fall Creek outside of Timber, Oregon. And so... Um, At the time, when I told that story to, I I actually told it on Australian TV. And the producer just cut and said, that's just bullshit. And I told it it to Peter Byrne. And he said, that's just bullshit. And um, I told it to Ray Crow. And he said, you're just full of shit. And so um, (laughs) that was like my lesson where I said, you know. I'd rather not talk about it anymore with people.
0: <laughs> well, no one listens to this podcast. You're fine. Okay.
2: You know, that's what that was one of the experiences that shut me up because I was like, wow, you know, like I, I'm approaching it on this level and I'm seeing that it's on this level and other people are like, you're just full of shit. So yeah. Hey
1: Henry like, Yeah. You, hey Henry, when you when you played your drums out there, was there certain kinds of beats or rhythms that attracted the squash more that they seemed to like more?
2: You know, I had a theory about that, but I, I don't know. I don't know, but I did have a theory. Cause um resonance is what I think is the key and resonance Certain music has resonance, and certain beats have resonance. Resonance in a chord, you know, Hendrix, everybody sounds like Hendrix or Ken now. The resonance of feedback that he used and things, um, those are frequencies that were prime numbers. And when you have frequencies occurring at least two at a time that are prime numbers, you create resonance. And I think that's one of the important qualities of music, especially music that carries feeling across the void to another person, you know, like the stuff that makes people that hear it go, oh, wow, I I feel that in my heart, you know. And so um, I found that prime numbers, prime rhythms, taken, you know, drums, my whole approach to the 18 records that I put out this concept underlied a lot of it, which was that I would construct rhythms that had two prime numbers and that would therefore create resonance. That would be attractive musically to Bigfoot because they like music. I figured, and they probably would like resonant music. So that rhythm was five against three that I played in that. Stupid thing. Well, it's not a stupid thing, but that was five against three. And um, one of the simplest prime number polyrhythms you can play. And yes, I may have made up the connection, but I believe that the prime number polyrhythms are one of the um, keys for how Bigfoot can sink into this dimension and then, you know, break rank and move out to another speed. And, you know, I I don't know. It's crazy. It's my crazy theory. It's crazy, but it's fun. Yeah, it's fun, right. Hey, I had no trouble, you know, like, I wasn't trying to impress anybody. I was just doing my thing. And so (laughs) I... Drums in the snow. Well, you know, the whole thing was a joke originally from (laughs) a, a friend of mine named Arthur Purley, who... When we first moved, when we, we went to Reed College in 1974 in Portland, Oregon, and we were partying one night, and he said, yeah, we should look for drum Bigfoot with drums. Yeah, we should go look for Bigfoot with drums. And I said, wow, that's really funny. And then, you know, 20, that was 1974, 1993, no, 1996, <laughs> when we made that movie. I was sitting around with Anthony Buonchi, the assistant director, and we were trying to figure. We were trying to write the script, and I said, "Well, you know, I had that old joke, you know, play look for Bigfoot with drums." Oh yeah, we can zoom the camera in. We'll start. We'll, we'll start the movie with that, you know, like and Norman Hall. The other, the director was just enthusiastic, so I really enjoyed writing that movie. You know, I really did enjoy writing it. And I wrote, I co-wrote the entire freaking thing. <laughs> but I'm not credited. But if, if you speak to any of those people that actually made it, they will agree that I co-wrote the whole thing.
0: Well, and but, you know, what what he's talking about, of course, is the, the show uh, Sasquatch Odyssey. Um, and I think it's one of the best documentaries probably ever made on the subject because of the angle it took. And, um, everyone... Yeah. Everyone should no, have heard of uh the four that. horsemen. You know, we, we talk about now the four horsemen of Sasquatchery, right? That,
2: that, that's a different that's not the movie I'm talking about. That's a it's different It's not.
0: Wait, wait, no, wait. That, that you're in that the, one. You're in there you're in the snow playing drums in that one. I thought that's what we we're talking about.
2: Bigfoot it's called Bigfoot or Bigfoot Monster Mystery. And that's the one I'm playing drums in the snow. Sasquatch Odyssey is the one that I I helped write that one inadvertently on the, the last day I did a public presentation about Bigfoot in 1998 at the Sasquatch Symposium in British Columbia. And I had just presented my work, my place name work, and I had decided to leave the field. And, I, well, I decided to bag it, right, And uh, just to stop the public pursuit of Bigfoot. And um, Peter von Putnam or whatever and his wife, they interviewed me and everybody was there. John Green was there. Renee DeHinden was there. And Peter Byrne was there. No, Grover Krantz was there. Peter wasn't there. And my goal in the early part of the Bigfoot research world Was when I came up, those four guys, the four horsemen, were the guys. That that was it. You know, I mean, those are the bigfoot researchers. Those four guys. So, I saw how I got to know each one of them and became friends with each of them, and saw how they each had their own artifacts, and they each had their own items they had accumulated over their lifetimes that they didn't share with each other. But if they did, it would lead to tremendous breakthroughs because they all had such confirming stuff for each other, but they didn't know it because they largely hated each other. So I really studied how and why they hated each other and what each one believed and why each one didn't like the others. And the criticisms they leveled at each other and everything. And I really studied all that stuff and got to know them all. And so I'm sitting there with Peter von Putnam or whatever his name was after I did my presentation and I'm sitting on rock and he interviews me. And I just go through all what Grover thought and what John Green thought and what DeHanden thought, what Peter Byrne thought and what they're doing and what and what they fought about and how they disagreed about the ape versus person dispute and the paranormal, this dispute and that dispute, you know, um, and how they hated each other. And then he basically took my blab, my rant and cut it up and filmed it. And he filmed everything in my rant when I talked about, how Peter always got all the money, you know, he showed Peter getting all the money. And then I talked about the end and believing they were people and, you know, not apes. And then they, you know, then they filmed the end and, you know, they went and provoked it out of all of them. And so they basically made the movie by um, shooting the rant that I made on a rock sitting outside this thing. And then at the end of the movie to summarize everything, they cut to like my narrative voice as I'm ranting on the rock, and they basically use it to sum up what you've just seen because you've just now seen. So inadvertently, I helped them write that whole thing, which was my. Uh, I feel like it was my homage to them, but um, well, it's others. It's a good one. You know, others <laughs> others really take credit for it. Rightfully so. I mean, it's not my homage, but you know, they did. I was their source. (laughs) I was the source.
0: (laughs) That's one of my favorite documentaries because I I only got a chance to meet John Green and uh, Peter Byrne. I never met Renee or Grover. And um, that's, you know, one of my few inroads to them, I guess, because I never had a chance to meet them. So. Uh, that's one of my favorite ones, but you know, I, did, and while you were speaking, um, I did look up you playing drums in the snow and the show is called the monster files. And, um, I happen to have found it on Amazon prime. So if you're an Amazon prime sort of character, you can watch the whole thing and watch Henry play drums in the snow in a puffy jacket and long hair. Wow. Well, I think it's changed names a few
2: times. I think that's the current name. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, that's what's available on, uh, amazon prime so
2: like a bad penny that keeps turning up yes yeah
0: never met a penny i didn't like
2: yeah me too which is problematic uh,
0: because my wife says don't pick them up if they're like tails up or something like that
2: oh really yeah she's wow she might be right who knows yeah Yeah,
0: i don't know a little superstitious in some ways but she might be right so i don't pick up anything
2: anymore wow (laughs) wow well yes it uh it was an early time. Well, the thing is, is that yeah, I like that movie. I like that movie too. Those wow. those guys. It was a they. It was like some lifetime dream of theirs too. They they dreamed of shooting a. Well, <clears throat> what I say is that it's proof of actually DeHinden, I think was the most fun out of all of them. I loved DeHinden the most out of them. I mean, I should. I hate to play favorites, but he he was a riot, and and Grover was a riot too. Actually, they were both kind of riots in and, and private. And um, De Hinden used to say, "Look, it's about the people. It's not about the uh, DeHindon's early insight was." that he would buy all the stories about looking for Bigfoot because the money to be made was the stories of the people looking for Bigfoot, not in anything actually Bigfoot because you could never find Bigfoot or real life. You know, you had no, you couldn't prove anything, couldn't find anything. So he bought Roger's film, because still writes to it, and he bought Roger's book. And, you know, he did what he, he bought Peter Burns book he did what he said. He bought everybody's story and he tried to make money by buying everybody's story. And he was the first one to show me the business side of Bigfoot as um, he was mostly interested in that. <laughs> so, but his early insights are still valid today. That's the thing about it. He's really uh, he's right the story often becomes about the people looking for it and not about it because there's really nothing that anyone has. There's, you know, Dr. Meldrum has his footprints and track casts. And that's the tangible end of this whole thing. You can hold it in your hand. You can measure it, do stuff on it. But so much of it isn't on that end of the continuum. It's all stories about LED belts and things like that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you go. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, what's going on here? Yeah. So um, I, I really, I yeah, I, I, I always kept a private interest going because I think that I reached a point where I was like, wow, what, you know, this is interesting. well
0: yeah and at the end of the day what can you do with a lot of it
2: right? you know what are they doing here who are these guys where is what is this place I live in I mean it leads to really profound questions because they force you into areas where you have to ask really profound questions
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah you end up having to listen to you know talking heads letting the days go by to figure anything out
1: I had your copy of your book you gave me a signed copy I think it was in 2009, but I just got it again. In the spirit of Seattle, S-E-A-T-C-O. And I don't think a lot of people are aware of this book because it's out of print. It's almost impossible to get. But you've got like about 175 pages where you meticulously ID every place, like, you know, landmark, like a creek or a mountain or a ridge with the word devil in it in uh, North America. It's it's really really it's a great research put in the lat longitude, so you can look it right up on Google Earth. It's I don't know if anyone could find it, but in the spirit of Shiyako, your book is one of my favorite books. Oh,
2: thank
1: you, and that's one of the things that uh... you're
0: carrying on, right? Um, You are best known, I think, nowadays not for your early uh, technological IT sort of pioneering um, or or you know. Fringe theories based in intelligence and stuff, but, um, or the book for that matter, you're best known for your research on place names, uh, Skookum Lake, Skookum, you know, this and that, Cultus, devil, de- you name it, man. And that's what Bubba's referring to. So, uh, it, at yeah. the very least, even if people haven't heard of yeah. you, you've affected most Bigfooters' lives in some ways, you know, and that's a kind of a cool thing to, to clay- lay claim to. Yes. Yeah.
2: That was my big idea, was the idea that place names were just they like... Matter. They matter. Were, they were like citing reports, but, you know, which was, if a place if a place was named Bigfoot, maybe that meant someone saw a Bigfoot there, maybe it didn't, similar to sighting reports where maybe the guy's bullshitting me, maybe he's telling the truth. So... I said, gee, you know, they're the same kind of sketchy thing. <laughs> and, um, they were done by people before there was any kind of modern taintedness before there was any kind of modern, um, occurrences that like made everybody go to bluff Creek, things like that. You know, sure. so yeah. I said, you know, you know, there's this, uh, this, they could be useful. And so, um, I just got carried away with that idea that was from the very first day where I saw, went to Skookum Lake, and then I had to read all eight different dictionaries' de- definition of the word Skookum in Chinook jargon and, you know, basically track down every scrap of evidence about what Skookum meant. And one of the strange things was one of the definitions of Skookum was Indian jugglery, and I think that was Horatio Hale, and I said, wow, and I had to figure that out, and it basically meant magic, and it meant um, Indian magic tricks, and I said, that's interesting, because there was a connection between the, um, there's always been a connection between Indian magic tricks in Bigfoot, let us just say, yes, in a certain way. And I you can find it in the very early definitions of the word skookum. That uh, first because now that the internet's here, all eight dictionaries, Chinook English dictionaries are online. So it's a it's a much better time today. You don't have to dig through old libraries anymore. Wow. It's much handier. But yeah. I, I did do the place name thing and I got carried away and took it to the nth degree so that there was you know, I mapped out all of North America. It was interesting to me. The um yeah, the whole place name thing. It was a was a good idea. It's my it one original idea. I guess yeah. I could I could say that. It was my one original idea. You know, it, you know and it pans that was out the one the thing. I said, Wow I
0: yeah, it, re- it really pans out. Mm-hmm. I, I use that that sort of thing all the time. I am more apt to go camping in a like down the calawash near Ogre Creek, for example, you know, than I am at some other spot with no other reference whatsoever, if the area is just generally squatchy. Um, and also we, we've noticed through the years, man, Bigfoots would be hanging out at the same spot, um, whether it's, you know, five years ago or a hundred years ago, as long as that area hasn't significantly changed. Yeah, we call it the halibut effect. Uh, cause like back in the day when I was living in Southern California and fishing, yeah, halibut, it
2: halibut.
0: You know, it's, yeah, it's called the halibut because back in the day when I was fishing all the time in Southern California, I would notice I'd g- I'd go to a spot and I'd catch like three or four halibut and then I wouldn't catch anything for a while. But if I went back a week later or something, two weeks later, the fish would be back and I would catch them again. And it's, and it's really nothing magical. It's just that the conditions in that spot are good for whatever animal it is, halibut like, you know, hard flat bottoms and stuff, and um, Sasquatches like it their way. So uh, where they go once, they'll go again. But if you can combine an area that looks great with um, a geographical name, or hopefully a couple of them, then that changes the game altogether. And generally speaking, that is true. Um, One of the spots I've been working this past month is outside of Colton. Um, And in that particular area, you have not only a variety of sightings over a small area, but you have... um, Cultus Creek, you have Memelus Creek, and Cultus, of course, is a, a dreaded place, right? And then Memelus, which is place of the dead, and then finally Hellion Creek, which is somebody who raises hell, right? So all these sort of chaotic, monster, spooky names are in this one spot, and sure enough, every November it pumps out silence. It, it tests
2: true. Yeah, That's something
0: it, you can actually test using the scientific work. method.
2: Yeah. It does work. It does work. Yes. Yes. And that was my early, di- that's kind of why I also didn't want people to follow me so much. Cause I was like, you know, um, why, why help people with no compassion? Like why, why show them how to do it? <laughs> I got a little, yeah. I got a little peeved at times, you know, cause mean people mean, people bothered me. I'm amazed in reverse in that, you know, now, of course, I mean, I tried to get everything. I tried to find every single one of them, but no one can do that. And there's always turns out to be more and more and more that I missed in the first two or three passes. But yeah, yeah, when you have a bunch of them in an area like that, it's really it's really kind of indicative of the. It's an area they like to hang out in. Yeah, clearly. See, I don't... I didn't... I know about the halibut effect, but I did observe in looking for patterns and sighting reports, there was a creek in Linton, Oregon, and there were sightings of a Bigfoot coming out of this creek 75 years apart in the same spot. And then there was a creek... um, near Ives Island below Bonneville Dam. And there were sighting reports 75 years apart there of a Sasquatch coming out of a creek. And I had collected these things and then I said, ah, time is not actually the variable we think it is. You know, somehow my assumption was not that the halibut, maybe was was my guess was that they could move through time, and time didn't matter, and they went to the exact same spot. But then later, I found different places that I was shown by different tribal members, which were doorways on the reservations that were stable and that they came through. So there's um, there's that possibility, because <laughs> there. I don't know if they need a doorway, but um, I'm of the opinion that they don't. But um, I think there are some doorways they use from time to time. At least I've been shown some, and but I haven't seen them actually in use. So are you
1: concerned thing. about people trying to hunt them at all? Like, do you think that that's even possible? Because like, no. we get reports of people having shot and killed them like a physical body. What what do you think about
2: that? I think any story about a dead Sasquatch or a physical... Yeah, a dead Sasquatch or a is false. By, you know, that's just it. Period. Every single story about their dead body is false. (laughs) Because when they die, I think they vibrate at a different speed... And I think when we die, we die, we vibrate at a different speed, which is why, this is another conversation, which is why electronic voice phenomenon exists and why when you talk to dead people with EVP, their voices are twice as fast because they're vibrating at a different speed. And so I think that Bigfoot being, in essence, an energy ball that you know, their bodies um, go away, dissip- dissolve. Uh, if they go their, their home vibration doesn't appear to be this one. And so when they die, they revert, their energy reverts to its natural vibrational frequent frequency, and they basically leave this plane of existence. So you'll never find a body. All stories about bodies are false. Prove me wrong.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, I I knew that Henry would be a good guest. He's got a lot to say. Um, He's got some wild ideas um, that are all born from experience and uh, uh, an intelligent mind. So uh, every idea is worth listening to, whether you believe it or not. It doesn't even matter as long as you listen and enjoy it because – I think the joy is in the weird. Yeah. Well, all right, Henry. Thanks so much for having uh, uh, having time to come on with us. We really appreciate it. Love new ideas. Love being super weird. And you have a a, 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 an overabundance of both of those two things,
2: man. Well, thank you very much, man. And um, my pleasure. And to talk to you guys again soon.
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Henry. Well, hey, Cliff. Thanks so much for getting Henry on board. That was a true honor, pleasure, and informative and just like I mean I could have talked to the guy we we almost did talk to him all night but yeah you can't get enough of that guy he's great yeah I thought thought that'd be a
0: a fun uh, dip in the pool of weird you know put the beyond back in a bigfoot and beyond as I keep saying um, cuz if there's anybody who's gone beyond and above it's Henry
1: well great cliff well until next week you and everyone else out there listening thanks for listening download share all that Give us likes, good reviews. Well, I hope you and everyone out there listening. Until next week, keep it squatchy.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes.